Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. So in this New Year's episode, we are doing what one does at this time of year. We're going to look back at 2018, and we're going to look ahead at 2019. Luckily, I'm not going to do this by myself, so to help me, I am once again joined by my co-host in Berlin, Rachel Tausenfreund. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Peter. And I'm excited to announce that we are joined as well by a new Out of Order co-host, Sharon Sterling. She is the deputy director of our Asia program, and she is sadly not with me, but uh, in D.C. with Peter. Hi, everyone. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited to be part of the Out of Order podcast series. So because this is quite a large episode with a lot of topics, we thought let's get everybody on board. So we also have our producer, Sydney Simon, here with us. Hello. So we said that we were going to look back. So let's start with that, the reflecting part. So we're going to look at what was good, what was bad, what was the ugly. And Rachel, why don't you tell us what you thought was good, bad or ugly in 2018? I would be probably hard pressed to come up with anything good. There were lots of ugly things, but I'm going to start with something I think that's more depressing than bad, I guess. And that's Macron. One might remember that in mid-2017, Emmanuel Macron won the French presidency under basically with lots of excitement and fanfare. And then shortly thereafter in June, his brand new party also won the parliamentary election. And for those of us sitting in Europe or Europe observers elsewhere, it looked like kind of fresh new excitement in Europe and maybe some energy to finally tackle all these reforms that we know Europe's been needing. He started pretty strong the first 18 months. Um, he pushed through a lot of reforms, tax reform, labor reforms, also a wealth tax cut, which some people weren't really fans of. But then starting late November, he was hit with passionate protests from the, they were called the Yellow Vest protests. These protests just grew. They got pretty violent. And in the end, a couple weeks ago, December 10th, Macron gave a address to the nation and he basically, yeah, he said, you know, I'm sorry, I've been wrong. And he pulled back a couple of the reforms. But the thing about this is it's a bit sad for Macron and France and, and the energy we thought he had. But the bigger story for me is Europe and the failure there because Macron had all this energy and right after the German election, so he laid out this big ambitious program and kind of made the call to Germany. And little did he know it was going to take Germany, you know, months and months to form a government. And even when it formed a government, it was going to be so busy kind of shooting itself in the foot and with fights between the parties that basically Germany never showed up to the table. This is what I would argue. Basically, it's sort of the death of Macron's most ambitious ideas about reforming the Eurozone and getting a Eurozone budget that will support it. He wanted to a stabilization tool. Germany didn't sign on to that. Germany did sign on to a lesser version, but there's not a lot of support from that from the other countries. So basically 2018, I think, started with a lot of hope that Macron was going to, with Germany, make things happen in Europe. And I think we're ending 2018 with no sign that anyone is going to make anything happen in Europe. Yeah, I would sadly agree with that, of course. I think it's a bit of a twofold story. So it's a story about Macron and France and an example of how 
these kind of reforms that he is pushing through, they're a bit out of time almost, and they're not very popular <laughs> with the population. I'm not very surprised that there is a pushback against this kind of reform he's trying at the domestic level. But it's a twofold story in that at the European level, of course, there have long been discussions about a German-French deal of sorts. And because of the electoral calendar, first in France, then in Germany, it never came to pass. And everybody was thinking maybe after the Germany elections. And even earlier this year, or in 2018, I should say, in Germany, when there was this debate about whether there should be a new grand coalition and the Social Democrats really, really did not want to go into it. And finally, under pressure, basically to form any kind of government, the party membership agreed. And it was almost like one of the main arguments for why the Social Democrats should enter another grand coalition, knowing full well that this is politically harmful for them, was that we need a government to respond to the French um, suggestion. So to say it a bit flippantly, it's like the Social Democratic Party would sacrifice its political standing and electoral standing to get to some kind of deal. And then the fact that that didn't happen is really frustrating from that point of view as well. So I guess maybe it was not realistic because there is a lot of pushback on any of these deals in Germany, unfortunately. So I, I don't know where, where this leaves us now for this year coming up. I think we're going to see a bit more of just what we've been seeing the last few years on, on this front. Yeah, what a great optimistic. I just want to add to the conversation going back to Macron. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that was also roiling Europe in the last few months and weeks was this idea of European defense and whether France and Germany were going to essentially come together to boost Europe's defense in light of the U.S. pulling back, or this this was the rhetoric. So I guess my question would be for you guys, what do you see uh, these yellow vest protests, do you see these as also kind of crippling any kind of prospects for more European defense independent of NATO? Of course, there's been a lot of debate on this, and this is largely a function of what's happening here in the U.S., and we'll get to that later, I'm sure, and the worry that many in Europe um, have about the U.S. pulling back. Unfortunately, I would argue, while there has been a lot of debate and a lot of grand statements, the actual results from this are not yet clear to me, whether whether they, they mean a real change in attitude towards more strategic autonomy. Certainly in the German case, that would mean also spending a lot more money. That's always a bit difficult uh, for a number of reasons in Germany. For now, I think it's it's still in the early stages of this. I don't know, Rachel, if you have any insights from your, from your position in Berlin on this. Yeah, I mean, so it's an important break on you know Europe's uh, military ambitions. On the German side, there's been some good movement on that. They recently you know came up with the budget and they did allocate more money to defense. This is a, a pretty positive sign. So Germany is starting to spend more. They're still not close to the two percent, but they are really committed to making these verbal commitments actually real. That's important. France is going to have the problem. It had the same problem with the reforms, right? That the money it spends on defense increases its deficit, which is a problem with the Eurozone. And this was also uh, potentially a problem with Macron's reforms, that he had to reform in such a way that he kind of, you know, couldn't give benefits to people before doing some other things that would tighten the budget. So, you know, I think there's more positive signs on that front than there is on the Euro front, but we're still pretty far from strategic autonomy or something like that. Sure. But but at least it's something positive. So we'll, we'll take this at this point. But maybe if we can... Uh expand a bit and um, bring in Sharon. Well, let me just say one thing on, on what we're talking about with Macron and, and France. I think one of, one of the things that makes what is going on right now in Paris with the protests um, maybe disheartening for some of us, particularly those who are watching, and to quote the podcast, The Liberal International Order, 
is that at the beginning of the year, I think that Merkel and Macron were really touted as the leaders on the global stage that were going to be able to take you know, this forward, who were going to be the ones in the international community that were going to be um, advocates for trade and for multilateralism and for um, human rights and, and all of these issues, uh, climate change or whatever have you, things that people were worried that the Trump administration and the United States were pulling back from. Um, and, you know, so part of the hope was that perhaps, you know, Macron wasn't dealing with the same sort of challenges um, on a domestic front that perhaps we were dealing with here in the United States. But as we come to the end of 2018, um, that might not necessarily be the case. And so in 2019, who's going to be leading the charge on some of these broader global issues? Absolutely. That's actually, I think, a fantastic point in that it, not only in, in France, sure, you have uh, these protests. In Germany, you don't have street protests of this level. But basically, most of the time was spent on this domestic quabbles because there were state elections. And so there was a whole debate within the two parties of the government about leadership roles. And there were attacks on the chancellor. And in the end, you know, she has set up her succession plan just um, uh, a short while ago. But we were very much focused on the internal um, situation in, in most countries in Europe, uh, just like we are here in the U.S. I, I love that I like started with something negative and we just found two more negative aspects to add on top of it. <laughs> um, but yes, indeed, there appears to be no leadership in the West. So this is looking great, guys. Now for something positive from Asia, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Sharon, what, what do you make of 2018 in Asia? I think the two big stories to come out of Asia um, the main one has to be China and the trade dispute. You know, if we don't want to say trade war, let's, we'll go with trade conflict. But that started in January and it just, you know, picked up speed throughout the year. And perhaps right now we're in, what, a 90-day pause, but, you know, we could very easily see this um, come back around on, on March 1st. Uh, I think the second big story is North Korea. You know, we started out 2018 with Kim in North Korea and President Trump here in the United States, essentially in a Twitter spat, in a case where they were... Little Rocket Man. Time. Little Rocket Man. I was going to say, you know, comparing the size of their, you know, nuclear buttons. And we saw the summit take place in June um, in Singapore. I think that people in the foreign policy community were worried from the get-go that there wasn't going to be much out of it, that this was all a win for North Korea and not much of a win for the United States. You know, if we want to say at least the two were talking, at least perhaps some of the rhetoric had died down. However, at the end of the year, you know, what have we seen? Really not much. We still have major tensions in the Korean Peninsula, and I don't see much of a way out. So those are the two big stories of 2018, and I actually think that those will be the two big stories of 2019. That also was not super positive, though. That absolutely, even as someone who doesn't full-time watch Asia, those, of course, are the stories that I also follow along, and especially on the trade front. But we have seen this now before. It seems very clearly that the U.S. administration has definitely decided to um, 
take a, a broader consensus on taking a tougher stand on the trade question to China. I think there's disagreement here on how and maybe with what rhetoric and how easy all of this is doable. Most people in D.C. at least would like to see a more concerted effort together with America's allies in tackling this, ideally in some sort of strategic and, and rules-based uh, approach. That is seems unlikely to be the approach that the administration here is is following. It's much more confrontational and and so on. So I'm I'm surprised or I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing how that develops. Given that you will also have now the a different leadership in the House of Representatives, and they might chime in on these things. And then, of course, we've we've seen market reactions that have been uh, volatile. I don't know if that's a, always the best indicator, but at least the president seems to follow this quite closely and seems to take this as a, a kind of a statement, uh, at least when they were numbers were positive on his own policy. So I personally expect more tension on the China-U.S. trade front with the caveat of if things go badly, I don't know how long the U.S. side or the president will will stay this course. Peter, if you can't pick trade, what's your story of 2018? Um, well, I'm going to say clearly what's happening in the U.S. I mean, we, I've, even without having said anything, I've already mentioned President Trump. It's uh, inescapable <laughs> that that is still the number one story that is shaping the development of the international order, how the U.S. is both in general, but then particularly under this administration changing its approach to the system. I actually focus a lot more on the domestic side of things in the U.S. because there's some underlying developments here. We had the election this year, which was quite a big deal. I think we saw an, a pretty strong repudiation of the president. I think it's it's not even gotten the attention it deserves. That has to do a bit with how long it took to become clear how big of a loss this uh, midterm was for the Republican side. I mean, the numbers in the national popular vote are anywhere, I think, over 8, 8.5% or so. The Democrats had a majority that's higher than the Republican wins in 1994 and 2010, which everybody remembers as huge turning points and, and waves. So the response here in the midterms, and we saw a very high uh, electoral participation, has actually been quite strong. My main worry is, so what? We're increasingly in a situation where if we didn't have an electoral college in, in the United States, I think no one would be even wondering whether Trump could win re-election. It's not that there's any chance for President Trump really, despite good economic numbers and so on, to win majorities. It's that his entire strategy is based on keeping his base engaged and then using the way the system is set up to remain or to keep as much power as possible. And we've seen some developments in certain U.S. states like Wisconsin and Michigan that show forecast what might happen uh, even at the federal level if more and more elections go against uh, the president's party and so on. So I'm really worried about these developments, the domestic democratic developments in the U.S., because so far, okay, the system is mostly holding, but uh, there's no guarantee that that it must. So that's what I'm personally is, I think, the, the biggest worry we should all have is how stable the system of government will be in the U.S. in the next year. Oh, fun, fun, Sorry. fun. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Cindy, I don't suppose you are bringing us a... Uh, less than terribly bleak story for 2018? Well, I'm sorry to be the literal bearer of bad news. My story is actually, I think, a little bit less on top of the radar, but I think it's an important one. And it's one that has really just popped up again in the headlines in the past few months. So back in 2015, I don't know if everybody 
would remember that The Atlantic had a cover story called Is It Time for the Jews to Leave Europe by Jeffrey Goldberg. And essentially his argument was that for the better part of the, you know, the last half of the century, the kind of memories of the Holocaust kind of shielded the continent of Europe from anti-Semitism because that memory was still still alive. And he he argued as the memories were fading and that as, you know, right-wing parties were coming, kind of coming more into the scene, that Europe was getting more dangerous for, for Jews. So he posed this kind of provocative question, should the Jews leave Europe? So flash forward to 2018, and CNN actually did a poll in across Europe in, I think, seven different countries, Austria, France, Germany, Great Britain, Hungary, Poland, and Sweden, that came out uh, just last month where they polled 7,000 people and all about anti-Semitism, and there were some pretty stunning numbers. A couple of the ones that really stood out to me was that a third of Europeans said that, that were polled said they knew just a little or nothing at all about the Holocaust. In France, that was even more pronounced, where one in five people between the ages of 18 and 34 said that they had never even heard of it, which I find surprising and, and a little bit alarming. You know, one in five said anti-Semitism in their countries was a response to the everyday behavior of Jewish people. And a third of Europeans said supporters of Israel use accusations of anti-Semitism to shut down criticism of Israel. And only one in 10 said that was not true. So, you know, there's some pretty bold stats, just a, a couple more to paint the picture. Roughly one out of three people said that Jews are too influential in political affairs around the world, which is a trope that was obviously, you know, something that was commonly heard. Um, during World War II and during the Holocaust. And in Hungary, a quarter of Hungarians estimated that the world is more than 20% Jewish. A fifth of British and Polish respondents said so. Um, but in reality, they were about 100-fold off because the world is 0.2% Jewish. All that to say that, you know, these numbers are, are quite stunning. And, you know, I, th I think that this is a problem that Europe is going to need to grapple with in in the coming year if if we're going to see functional progress or functional politics um, because anti-Semitism is obviously a symptom of other societal issues that we're looking at as well. Absolutely, I would uh, even uh, go uh, further. I've I've often thought about in in Europe what would happen if so. If you think about my generation in Germany, is basically going to be the last generation or in, in any other country that still knows or has the experience of meeting people that were alive during World War II. What would happen once that personal connection is no longer there? Will it be seen as something that's far away and therefore less known, as, as Sydney pointed out? I You know, the shocking thing to me this year on many of these things was also you have this in Europe and then, of course, in in many countries quite pro, uh Pronounced, but you also saw a lot of it in the U.S. this year, and you know you have this even in the campaign. People, you know, there was a lot of talk on the Republican side about George Soros that was only very thinly uh, hidden, and of course you had the horrible incident in the in Pittsburgh. That's a really sobering development in the last year for sure. Yeah, and and I should add that, um, like Peter said, the problem is is not just European. Um, there was another survey carried out in America um, last year that found that 10% of American adults were not sure that they'd ever heard of the Holocaust.
know, a lot of times anti-Semitism, xenophobia are symptoms of people feeling like they're left behind from globalization, which is also, you know, a catalyst for the far right. So I think this will be something to watch. Um, Hopefully it will get the attention that it deserves in the coming year. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, it's uh, in, in... In Berlin and especially in France, um, it's true. It has been quite a story in in 2018, a surprising story. So we are um, now going to transition from our cheery, cheery look at 2018 into the bright future of 2019. We're going to start with Asia. I mean, you mentioned already sort of trade as being the big story of 2018. That'll probably also be a big story in 2019. What else are you and your colleagues watching in 2019? So I think when it comes to Asia, what the uh, what our program here at GMF will be looking at over the next year, particularly when it comes to China, we're going to be talking about the trade conflict between the United States and China. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Xinjiang with the Muslim Uyghur minority there, the tensions in South China Sea, and a newly developing story, it's the Huawei and hostage diplomacy, which has, I think, taken everyone by surprise and really shown just how extreme the tension between the United States, China, and in this particular case, even Canada and China has gotten. So as part of this podcast episode, we asked some of our colleagues, and one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Janka Ortol over in Berlin, had the following to say. So what to watch for 2019 from the uh, Asia program is Europe's response to U.S.-China tensions. The U.S.-China confrontation over trade has ushered in a new era for Europe, not least since the antagonistic tone in Vice President Pence's speech and the decision to target Chinese electronics giant Huawei has become quite obvious that the level of confrontation runs much deeper and goes far beyond the trade realm. The U.S. conversation on China has moved into the space of systemic confrontation. It will be one of Europe's key tasks to find policy responses that are cognizant of European interests in an increasingly antagonistic atmosphere. So to avoid fall back into Cold War-style mechanisms, a more convincing answer than the current attempt to stay neutral will have to be found. Despite the fact that there's a growing awareness in virtually all European capitals that a reassessment of their relationship with China is warranted, no joint position has yet emerged. If forced to choose sides on contentious issues, The response of European companies and governments is by far clear and could easily produce the next huge crisis over European unity. Broadly speaking, geopolitical tension in the Indo-Pacific, as it's now called, has to do with how we want to structure Asia, whether or not we believe in free trade, whether or not we believe in freedom of navigation, with Chinese buildup in the South China Sea, with tensions in the East China Sea. These are all things that are still um, very prevalent And it's something that we're going to continue to be watching. I think that with the competition, the way that it is and the tensions running as high as it is, part of the balance that sort of falls into the cracks sometimes is how ASEAN and Southeast Asia are dealing with this. Even Japan, in some ways, I think that we, for the first time in a few years, saw Tokyo and Beijing um, reach a sort of detente of sorts. Um, That, I think, um, was in large part due to the tension between the United States and China. Um, Not in any way I would there's no risk whatsoever in that Japan would become closer to China as a way to hedge against the United States. I think the U.S.-Japan alliance remains strong. The, The relationship there no matter what you say about you know the Trump and Abe relationship and and the ups and downs that it has had, I think that the alliance between Japan and the United States remains strong. Uh, those who are working on the issues at the State Department, 
at the um, NSC, etc. Even my, you know, contacts out in Tokyo always say communication, the coordination, all of this um, remains quite high. But I do think that as countries in Asia are trying to find a way to balance between the United States and China, that are they're trying to find a way um, not to contain China, um, but not to become um, overly close to either one as well. I think that we're going to see a lot more on the developments on that front. That's nothing new. It's very similar to what was um, touted during the Obama administration with the pivot to Asia. But the interesting aspect about that is that in the transatlantic space, I think during the pivot, there was much more of a worry that Europe in some ways was being forgotten, right? Like United States was turning away from Europe and focusing on Asia. At this particular juncture, I think that the Europeans are starting to find much more interest in Asia. They're starting to come together with much more of a strategy. I think that there's still a lot of pieces that are missing on the China front, but there's a lot more coordination being done on the transatlantic front in Asia. So in some ways, that's a positive aspect for 2019, and we'll see how that develops further. So I heard someone talking about you know, the, the threats of the Trump administration, what did they call it? Like a bloody nose strike against North Korea, some kind of you know quick... Mm-hmm potentially irrational. Um, And behavior like this is making South Korea start to hedge in terms of clearly aligning with the U.S. and they're they're starting to wonder, do we have to find a more independent position? Do you think this is something we'll see more in 2019 or was 2018 the height of that? Uh, When it comes to North Korea, I think there will be a lot of developments in 2019. I think that you have the president of South Korea, um, President Moon, who has essentially put all his eggs in one basket in terms of reunification. The challenge is that the South Korean president has banked everything on reunification. The South Korean economy is not doing well, but this is his platform. And so this might be the year that we'll see them get ahead of the United States in terms of policy. And that's a very dangerous place, I think, for the United States to be at in terms of what it wants to accomplish on the Korean Peninsula and what might actually happen. Yeah, I would, as an outsider looking in, I always find it fascinating that how little we understand or focus on the actual domestic politics of other countries involved in the region. So I, you know, South Korea clearly is the country that has in this, um, in this relationship you know, their entire domestic politics, a lot of it probably revolves around this relationship, and yet it doesn't factor in often in the debates here about the, you know, how the U.S. and North Korea and maybe China engage in this. But yeah, clearly that will keep us busy in 2019. I think one story that was a little bit in the headlines that I think that we'll be seeing a lot more of in 2019 is also what's happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghur minority, the Muslim minority based in that part of China. There hasn't been Given what the story is, I'm surprised that there isn't more focus on it. I mean, it's still a little opaque, but the numbers are between several hundred thousand um, Uyghur minority um, members in re-education camps and up to a million. That's a really unprecedented number of people in so-called re-education camps. In the last Stockholm China Forum that we held Um, Last month, there was certainly 
an uproar from the Americans and the Europeans in terms of the human rights abuses that are taking place there. I think the international community really needs to come together in a much more vocal way to find out what's going on and how we need to confront this issue. Um, well, speaking of the developments in Asia and between the U.S. and China on the trade front, I think trade in general is going to be a big uh, issue going forward. And actually, one of our colleagues, Peter Chase in Brussels, in our written product about what to look for in 2019, he wrote about this uh, the EU-U.S. Uh, trade relationship and the tensions there. Rachel, I don't know, do you want to summarize what he was talking about and then we can discuss? Uh, sure, I can try it. Peter Chase kind of started with where we've come from. If you think about it, it was two years ago, we were trying to work on TTIP, the US and Europe. And now, 2018, we saw not just between the US and China, but between the US and the EU, an escalation of trade tensions. And the US has put 25% um, duties on $6 billion worth of steel and aluminum exports, trying to protect the U.S. national security. That's in sort of air quotes. And the EU has retaliated something like $4 billion worth of U.S. exports, and they filed a WTO case. And there's, there's basically talk of more in terms of auto tariffs. So there is, like with the China case, a bit of a ceasefire at the moment. I think nobody really knows what, what's going to happen there. So we've, we obviously had the summit in 2018 between President Trump and um, President Juncker, where they agreed to negotiate, but it wasn't quite clear. And to my knowledge, is still not entirely clear what is going to be negotiated. So the Europeans would like to keep agriculture out of any kind of negotiations. But on the American side in Washington, the pressure is quite high to include agriculture. And the famous agriculture lobby and interests are, of course, strongly represented in, in Capitol Hill. So we'll see. I think the next step in the 2019, what to look forward to is what will happen on cars and auto tariffs. So that's the... Um, next development. I think we'll we'll see a decision there pretty soon. And from there, we'll go forward and, and see um, whether the EU tactic of kind of keep, keep talking to the US side and try to engage them while not having the situation spin out of control will be successful. Peter, that sounds, yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, Peter Chase, he's a bit optimistic that the U.S. and the EU are going to sort of cool down in 2019 and figure out that the real challenge is China on trade stuff and be able to work out a deal and, and start working on that. I personally, as already has been demonstrated in this episode, I'm not very optimistic about 2019. Well, I'm not really sure that's going to be the case, but on this small potential note of optimism, we'll stop it here for this episode. And we just barely started talking about 2019 and what we want to watch. But that's because we have a second episode in this package that's slated for the new year where we're going to continue to talk about all the things our colleagues pointed to that we should be looking for, looking at for 2019. Thanks for listening to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. Out of Order is produced by Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant. New episodes will be available every other Thursday. Subscribe and download on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts.